Good afternoon and welcome to Keep Calm and Carry On. In this brief episode, I want to express two heretical views about dividend investing. They are based on nearly 20 years of committed dividend investing reflected in three books staking my professional reputation and a slew of tweets and web posts that put me very much on one side of the equation. But it is precisely that experiencing commitment and inside view, if you will, which leads me to raise two challenging questions. The first is whether the dividend yield of the U.S. stock market really matters anymore. To judge by my own body of work, you would assume that the answer is yes. I have repeatedly observed how low the yield of the market is, both in, in terms, uh, absolute terms and relative to history. For the former, I stand by the assertion. Indeed, much of my day job is based on offering a materially higher yield than the market. As the S&P 500 index's yield is, uh, has been or, uh, at or below 2% for the past several decades and has recently fallen to 1.3%, near its all-time low of 1.1% uh, from 20 years ago, that business opportunity is as great as it has ever been. In some ways, the lower the yield goes, the greater the opportunity and admittedly the challenge of delivering a meaningful income stream from such an impoverished platform. But it can be done. No, the heretical view is different. It questions the assumption that the low dividend yield of the overall market is a useful guide to future returns for the S&P 500 index. The market's yield has been a tool used by observers to parse expected returns for decades. Uh, low yield supposedly signals low future returns. High yield signals higher future returns for the market. The logic is simple. When the yield is low, the market is expensive and future returns will suffer. When the yield is high, the market is cheap and presents a good opportunity. There is a natural tendency to view the stock market in this manner. It is partially semantic. We assume the market, or Mr. Market for some, exists. The Spider ETF did not exist in 1957 when the S&P 500 index came into formal existence and retail index funds only came into existence in the mid-1970s. But they do exist now and are very popular. The market as a single investable entity is around and can be judged, so to say, by its yield. The format of data led in the uh, same direction as the words. Uh, the convenience of an index is that it is really convenient. The data starts being built around them. So we have Robert Schiller's data, and we have Howard Silverblatt's data, and we can expect an index to behave according to that data. So with all that semantic and numerical infrastructure in place, I have on more than one occasion questioned the valuation of the market based on its yield. While the market's aggregate yield may one day again serve as an accurate predictor of future returns, in the past few decades, frankly, it has not worked particularly well. Lower yields have just gotten lower. High share prices have just gotten higher. No one's complaining too much except for folks like me, sticklers for historical truth. Well, I need to acknowledge where I've been wrong, at least up to now. If the market's yield has not been a good predictive factor for the overall market in recent uh, decades, there may be a valid reason. And it is not directly due to the direction of earnings, interest rates, or payout ratios, the bigger, more significant uh, forces that are assumed to empower dividend yields as a predictive factor. When the S&P 500 uh, index was created in 1957, all but a handful of its constituent members would have had a dividend and a material one at that. The newly created index had a trailing yield at year-end of 4.44%, imagine that, and a 53% payout ratio. That is, 
dividends were everywhere, and investors cared about them in a way that is nearly unimaginable today. In that context, the yield of the market uh, would have been a good input for investment decisions. Yield as a uh, forecasting tool or factor has been used ever since with varying degrees of diminishing accuracy as the market moved away from dividends. And that is the real problem. The market has changed. It's not that each member of the S&P 500 index now has a low payout ratio and a low yield, suggesting future lower returns. No. Instead, it is now the case, and this is the main point I've covered in prior episodes, that fully 120 companies, including the names leading the market, have no dividend at all. Something multiplied by zero is zero. Another 90 have a yield, but it's below 1%. Their yield is simply too low to be considered a meaningful valuation or expected returns tool. There are no shades of gray here. So it's about 40% of the market by security count, And by market cap, it's much worse. 27% of the market has no yield whatsoever, and another 25% has the yield below 1%. So it's a total of 52% of the market by size is unavailable to serve as a signal using dividend yield. My quant friends uh, will object here, saying that from a total return perspective, uh, it's easy to compare non-dividend-paying securities with higher dividend-paying ones and come to whatever conclusion the data points to. And they would be correct from a narrowly quantitative perspective. But for those investors who believe that distributable cash flow is the sine qua non fundamental factor for the relative and absolute valuation and expected returns, non-dividend payers just don't count. They are not part of the investable universe. So to have such a large percentage of the market out of the cash flow signaling business naturally reduces the utility of such a measure for the market's overall valuation and future returns. No wonder my Twitter posts about the market's low yield uh, as a warning signal have fallen on deaf ears. So while I will continue to make the point about how low the market's yield is in historical and absolute terms and about the genuine and massive income problem that such a low yield represents and Conversely, the opportunity that it presents for true income-seeking dividend investors, I will henceforth cut back on the doom tweeting that relies on dividend yield as an indicator of future returns for the market as a whole. All that being said, I am still calling for a major change in the markets and for a big shift in the dividend metrics, but not as a result of a doom-tweeted single-factor outcome. Instead, I'm looking for, over the next five years, for payout ratios and market yields to increase as a result of interest rates no longer going down and companies shifting money from buybacks into dividends. That is not narrowly a market valuation call, but a market plumbing call. When that does happen, perhaps dividend yield will again serve as a useful metric for assessing the overall market. More on that paradigm shift later. The second heresy that I want to discuss today might even be more challenging to the dividend status quo. For dividend practitioners, it is practically a shibboleth of the trade that dividend cuts are horrible, destructive, and disastrous. From a portfolio management perspective, they are viewed as a failure of process and a repudiation of all those PowerPoint slides that we show to due diligence analysts and clients. I've uttered such sentiments in the past myself, but let's reconsider, if only for the sake of argument, this assumption about dividend cuts, especially in light of the U.S. market's retreat from dividends noted just now. It's common in investing, as in life, to posit a continuum of risk and reward. No risk, no reward. 
In the stock market, the logic applies to total return risk and total return reward. The definition of risk in the stock market is a, it's a miserable one, but it is what it is, the standard deviation of total returns. In some instances, individuals will reference drawdowns in share prices or permanent impairment of capital. These are all total return-oriented definitions of risk in a market which barely has a dividend. De facto, they are definitions of risk based almost entirely on the movement or level of share prices. That definition of risk, I would argue, should be altered for dividend investors, at least for those business investors who approach the stock market as a business and are looking for cash returns from cash investments. For them, a more appropriate approach to the risk and reward continuum is dividend risk and dividend reward. The less dividend risk you take, the less dividend reward you can expect. The reward is a high and rising income stream. The risk is an occasional hiccup on the way to said high and rising income stream. In the stock setting, a portfolio approach is used to minimize individual security price risk. Well, the same can be said for cash flows. A portfolio approach minimizes the impact of any one income stream falling short, a dividend cut, on the portfolio's overall income generation. Let me give you an example. A dividend-focused portfolio has a 4% yield. Again, compare that to the market's 1.3% yield. So this is a high-yielding portfolio, but but a manageable one. One of the holdings, uh, the famous Acme Roadrunner Company, is a 2% position and has a 6% yield. Definitely high, but uh, you do find such companies in the marketplace. It contributes 12 basis points to the portfolio's overall yield. While the company has been paying and modestly increasing its dividend for years, one year the demand for roadrunners plummets, the company has a high payout ratio, and it finds it necessary to cut the dividend by 50%. That is unfortunate, but such things happen, assuming no dividend increases from any of the other 30 holdings. The yield of the portfolio has dropped by six basis points, so instead of a 4% yield, the, the expected 4% yield, it has a realized yield of 3.94%. That is unfortunate and to be avoided wherever possible, but it's not the end of the world in a market context that yields 1.3%. And as most equities raise their dividends over time, the practical impact on a portfolio's income stream of an occasional cut from an individual holding would be even less. So let's not over-dramatize the impact of a dividend cut. They should be few and far between, of course. The main form of dividend risk, therefore, is mitigated with the basic math of diversification. 20 or 30 or 40 well-selected income streams mixed and matched means that no one mistake will materially impact the size of the check that a portfolio throws off monthly or quarterly. But there is a second element of balancing dividend risk and dividend reward, and this is where the, the heresy comes in. A portfolio with a lower yield has a lower risk of dividend cuts because the low-yielding companies generally have lower payout ratios, goes without saying. But the very important offset for that lower cut risk is the lower yield itself and the resulting lower net present value of the income stream. Nothing ventured, nothing gained. A portfolio with a materially higher yield has a higher risk of individual cuts, but it comes with higher cash flow, something ventured, something gained. While having a high-yielding portfolio and no dividend cuts is certainly an ideal outcome from a net present value perspective, a more realistic and manageable outcome is that in an effort to maximize that uh, net present value of an income stream from a portfolio, the portfolio will now and again experience a, a dividend cut from a constituent member. That is, a portfolio that is not 
taking dividend risk by having a very low yield or payout ratio is, in effect, leaving money on the table. It may sound good to say that a portfolio has never had an individual security dividend cut or that a particular ETF consists only of companies that have raised the dividend for the past 25 years, the so-called dividend aristocrats. But if that goal is achieved because of a low payout ratio and yield, the dividend investor is leaving cash on the table, playing it safe, not maximizing the income opportunity. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, the total return of that type of strategy may be quite attractive, but the income and therefore the net present value of the asset or portfolio has not been maximized. Even if you're not an aristocrat, just a plodding burger, and go years and years without a distribution hiccup from one of your investments, you might want to ask yourself, are you super smart? Or are you actually not taking enough dividend risk, not maximizing your income? As regular listeners know well, I'm not a big fan of modern portfolio theory's notion of an efficient frontier, especially for extremely volatile and fickle share price-based total return versus largely useless standard deviation of said share price-based total return. But I will aver, I will acknowledge there is a clutch point, a point that should, in theory, balance dividend risk and dividend return to maximize the net present value of an income stream. Below that point, you are leaving money on the table. Above that point, you're reaching for yield, taking too much dividend risk and putting more of the realized portfolio yield in jeopardy. To look at the dividend product landscape, I am nearly alone in my thinking. That's not for the first or the last time. Many of the offerings don't seem that interested in maximizing that present value of the income stream. That's fine, but I think it's worth calling out. For instance, the lords and ladies of the dividend aristocracy tell a good tale, 25 straight years of increases, but the aptly named ETF based on that index has a yield of less than 2%. From where I stand, that nobility is a bit down in the heel. Again, I want to acknowledge that the total return approach may favor lower yielding income streams. It certainly has for the past few decades. But that is a separate activity from maximizing an income stream in a business setting. You may want to look at your favorite dividend product and consider the yield and the payout. Higher is not always better in a business or stock market sense. It is possible to overreach for yield as it is in any other endeavor. But making a virtue of underreaching is equally unattractive, especially for income seekers or business investors in the stock market seeking to maximize their income opportunity. That's it for this episode. It emerged as a response to a particular item in the media recently. Uh, In the next episode, I'll be returning to the larger Keep Calm and Carry On project. It's about counting in the investment industry. I think you'll be surprised to learn how it is done and the implications for investors. I hope you'll tune in then.